Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. Now, our guest today appears often at writers' conferences, sharing her in-depth insights into fiction writing. Katya Leaf is the author of several internationally best-selling crime novels. Her novel, The Money Kill, was nominated for a prestigious Mary Higgins Clark Award. A versatile author, she has written under three pen names, and her latest critically acclaimed novel is A Map of the Dark, written under the pen name Karen Ellis. Katya teaches fiction writing at the New School in Manhattan and lives with her family in Brooklyn, New York. So, Katya, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Well, first of all, congrats on the new book. I look forward to checking it out. I've been looking at some of the reviews for it, and uh, it looks really, really interesting. Thank you. Um, Yeah, it came out about three weeks ago, and so far the reception has been really pretty good. And it's always, you know, once you write it and then publish it, it's out of your hands. It's got to develop its own legs in the world so it's a little like watching your baby take off and <laughs> a little nerve-wracking but it seems seems to be holding its own right now yeah no that's <laughs> great and that's a good analogy you know i've often talked to authors who when a book comes out they're already thinking about or working on the next project because there's a leg time between the time we finish and the time a book actually releases and sometimes people have said oh my goodness, I had to review my book because I knew you were going to ask me about it and I wanted to make sure it wasn't the current one that I was working on. So, Yes. Oh, absolutely. That happens all the time because um, you hand a book in way, way before it's published. And in the interim, we're generally working on another book and I have been doing that and I so I handed in a second book to this publisher which for me is a new publisher um right before Thanksgiving oh, and wow. that's where my brain has been planted right um right. yeah and so and yet I went right from handing that in to the holidays and then immediately after the holidays doing publicity for a map of the dark which is the last book that right. I wrote, right? So, yes, I absolutely had to review and try to separate out the new book from the old book and um, be careful not to accidentally talk about the the newest project, which the is new, in my book, but not in the world yet. So, yeah, it can be really confusing, and you know that, too, as an author, which is why it was such a great question. Um, you have to remember what you wrote. So, yeah. Yeah. Do you find that it's easiest for you to work on one project and just throw yourself into it? Or do you have several things on the back burner that are always sort of cooking and bubbling and you move things around? I I prefer to work on one project at a time because I get really intensely involved in it. Um, And it fills my mind. Um, So I always try to kind of clear the decks. So if I know that I'm going to be starting a new novel, um, I try to have everything important done that needs to be done so I can just do that, if possible. You know, you can't do that 100%, but I do the best that I can, yeah. And sometimes after writing, you know, getting to the end of a first draft of a novel, I try not to let this happen, but once in a while I've I've found a couple unpaid bills and stuff 
uh, that are kind of alarming, but I really <laughs> kind of hyper-focus a bit. Yeah, I'm kind of the same way, although right now I'm sort of in between things, and I'm I'm kind of, I have like four things, and I'm like, Steve, you have to, ch-. my wife says the same thing, she's like, just choose one, and do it, right. and I kind of, I'm like, but I'm interested in this, and I'm trying to know something new, and so I've got, yeah. I, know, I know I need to <laughs> get a little bit of focus, and, and probably, oh, it's, it's, it's yeah. hard, and it's so easy to get distracted, so you want to maintain the focus. Yeah, now, when, I, when I'm kind of really into a book, when I'm finishing it or editing or whatever you want to call it, I mean, I will spend 10 to 15 hours a day sometimes just dive in. And, wow. and then afterwards, after about a week or two, I'm just like, I'm dead. <laughs> wow. So you go into it and it was great, great, great intensity. At the very wow. end, you know, and, and um, I can't say that I work on a book 10 or 12 hours every day throughout the year. But um, but at the very end, I, I sometimes go on these writing retreats where I'll just go to a house or a hotel or something for two weeks. And That's just, so great. Yeah. You know, do what you said and try to step away from everything else and just get into it. Yeah. Because we're trying to, to keep... Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, because we're trying to keep that whole story in our mind as we weave right. in the details or clues or whatever. And how right. do you keep... 500 pages in your mind when you're distracted by uh, so many other things. Oh, it's it's so hard. Um, one thing, though, so I, I don't generally go as intensively as you're describing. I have in the past, though, yeah. and I learned that if I do that, then I have trouble sleeping. Yeah, no kidding. Because I'm so <laughs> kind of riled up with it. Um, and that then I'm exhausted the next day and can't perform any aspect of work or life well so i i try to kind of pace myself um when i was younger i would do i mean i once when i was much 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 younger i once wrote the first draft of a novel in six days what while crazy working full-time and in graduate school what it was but i like to say it was a three-day weekend it was insane it was insane it was nuts and I did it. I guess I just wanted to see if I could. And this was this was a long time ago. This was pre-internet, so it wasn't part of a contest. Right. We have these contests now, like write a novel in 30 days, and I'm like, heh. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, but I did it, and in the end, it, it ultimately did get published. Yeah. But but not that draft of it. I ended up, re, you know, I brought some of the chapters into my graduate school workshops was kind of discouraged, stuck it in a drawer, and three or four years later had a, an epiphany of just what I needed to do oh, to nice. make that novel work. And then I re- really did redid it from scratch. But I, I think as a young novelist um, kind of building my chops, I guess I needed to show myself that I could do something as crazy as that. But another takeaway for me was, I don't have to do that. So I'm not going to do that. I have the capacity, and I'm not going to do that. I like to sleep. I like to feel rested. So I, I pace myself. Um, I mean, that's, that's my smart. thing. Good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't, I don't know how you pulled that off. I talked to I don't either. You know, one other author once, and he had done a book, his first draft in 10 days or something. Hmm. But you have the record right now. Yeah. I have the record <laughs> that I know of. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I have no interest. I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> you know? Now, 
when you when you I know that you teach other writers at it conferences is. and also through um, the, the new schools. Yeah, the new school in Manhattan. What yeah. what do you see as some of the most common mistakes that aspiring authors are are making these days? Um, I think the the most the biggest mistake is to expect polished, finished work in early drafts and mm. to be so intimidated by that expectation that they freeze and become paralyzed. Um, I, I, you know, I, as you know, in order to write the first draft of anything, you know, in my classes I'm teaching, you know, a lot of people are writing short stories and some people are, take on novels, but especially as a novelist when you know you have a mountain of pages to produce yeah. and that you're going to have to, you know, a lot of them won't end up being usable. You kind of have to psych yourself into um, taking that challenge on. And for, so I always try to impart a sense of uh, playfulness oh, and, yeah. yeah, and openness and sort of, sort of self-forgiveness, you know, just go for it, just go for it. And, the ideas will start to percolate. You you don't need to have it all figured out before you sit down, and it won't come out perfectly the first try. Um, so that's the first thing I really try to kind of do is shake shake up their shake shake them up so their fears don't have hold of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. In, in uh, some of my seminars, I've sometimes said to people, fear will always drive you back to an outline. And there isn't necessarily anything wrong with an outline, and I know many people use right. it. I, I'm more organic. But what right. happens very often is we, I feel intimidated if someone says, oh, you need to outline your, your book or something. I'm like, mm. that paralyzes me. Mm. And very often okay. what happens, yeah, with the aspiring authors is they've been told that they need to know, you know, where the story goes and so on. And, right. and it's I like yeah. that sense of playfulness and freedom to say, look, you don't have to know everything about where the story's going or about the ending. You can begin the work and work your way through it and be responsive to it. It's nice. Yes, I really encourage them to find their own best practices. Yeah. Um, when it comes to outlines, because outlines always come up. Do I should I outline? Should should I not outline? And it's just I always, you know, and I say to find out what works for you. Right. If you if, it, if an outline helps you, use an outline. If an outline hinders you, don't use an outline, but figure out who you are as a as a writer. Um and get to know yourself and just figure out what works. You know, does it work for you to write a page a day or twenty pages a day or what works for you? If you're yeah. if you're somebody who will never be able to write more than a page a day, don't set out to write twenty pages a day. Because you'll paralyze yourself. Um, so figure yourself out. And, I mean, I personally, I have sometimes write without lines. I sometimes don't write without lines. Yeah. Sometimes I use a skimpy little one-page outline. Sometimes I do a voluminous 15-page outline, depending on the complexity of the story. Um, and, I'm okay, and I'm okay with it, but then I also change the outline as I go. I right. never stick to it. Um so, yeah, flexibility and kind of knowing yourself as I like a writer. that with different projects, yeah. you have a different approach. Instead of feeling locked in that you have to do it a certain way, you kind of 
you know, organically look at the, the story and yeah. then adapt to, you know, the best way to write it. I feel like that's a good approach. Yeah, I, I think it's the only approach. You have to you have to know yourself and figure yeah. out and, and what under what conditions are you your best storyteller, and then create those conditions for yourself. Now, w- one question that I had, you know, regarding uh, as you work f- forward into your stories, what tends to come first for you, the characters or the crisis? In other words, do you have sort mm-hmm. of this plot idea? Or do you like to build the characters up and then come up with situations to stick them in and see how they respond? Uh, another great question. So both. For A Map of the Dark, uh, my newest just-published book, it was the, the crisis. It was you know a, a crime that I read about in, a new, in the newspaper that I thought, whoa, that would make a great... Um, sort of seed for a novel. Yeah. Um, and I started with that, and then, and I mulled that over for a really long time, and I think I had that idea in the back of my mind for maybe a year. And I took a couple notes and filed it away. Um, and then when I decided to really use it, um, by then the character, a character had been percolating, and I put those two together. Sure. Um, for, the, for the last one that I wrote, that's now in my editor's hand, hands, which will uh, presumably be published in around a year, I guess. Um, it was the reverse. It was the characters that came to me first. And then and I, I thought about that for like a year as I was writing the other one. And as it really, really stuck with me, then I started to think, okay, well, what's their story? What's the problem here? Yeah. What's the crisis? Yeah. So, so for me, it's 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 really both. Yeah, either or. Now, with um, uh, with a map of the dark, um, as I understand, that's a new series that you're starting. That's a brand um, new. Yeah, it's a yeah, new brand. series, and it, but it's going to be a different kind of series, kind of a loose series. In that, the way I'm approaching it right now is that. Um, the protagonist of a, um, a Map of the Dark is an FBI agent named Elsa Myers, and she's partnered with a New York, an NYPD detective named Lex Cole. So she's the primary protagonist in, in this story. In the second book, Lex Cole steps forward, and he's the, the, product, the protagonist. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so he leads it, and he has a new partner, and Elsa comes in as a kind of side character. Yeah. So theoretically, and it's still defensive, <laughs> theoretically the, his partner would lead the third book. So okay, that's sure. how I, I thought it would be interesting to do that. A ton of French does that, and I've always been really intrigued with it. I've, also, I've always also loved kind of loosely connected stories, um, I'm just, I've just been fascinated by that always, um, when they intersect in a kind of sideways way. So I decided, cause I, having just come off a four book series following the same protagonist who I loved, but I just decided to do this one a little differently. And also because the Elsa Myers character is so dark and so troubled and so burdened that both 
I and my agent and editor in conversations kind of felt like, well, how could she, her story is told in a map of the dark. Yeah. And so everybody agreed that it was a kind of um, good idea and an interesting idea to take this different approach. Yeah. Because that's that's the plan right now. Yeah, there was enough closure, I suppose, that that it worked well. When you mentioned the idea of interwoven stories and stuff, it... I love stories like that, and sometimes movies will do that. I was, I was mm-hmm. thinking of um, this movie called Magnolia that I saw years ago, and it has, I don't know, maybe four or five different story threads, and it weaves mm-hmm. back and forth with each one of them, and then they all eventually come together at the end. And and, and uh, Crash does that a little bit, this movie Crash. Right. Came out in yep. one, you know, this... Um, the best picture and I just think it's so interesting and and I think that you know readers today and viewers are so narratively astute that they almost thirst for that kind of stuff instead of just a story without all of those interwoven threads and the Mm. more the more we can include that I think I think people are really satisfied with that I think so too it's it's might be this sort of an element in people's love of series, yeah. both in books and in, you know, TV shows, TV which shows, are sure. fantastic. Um, and that we follow so many different threads and you can handle different threads now. We've almost become um, acclimated to handling, to weaving a broader tapestry of storytelling um, than you get in just a single story, a single movie, a single standalone book. So, yeah, and it's, that's a neat thing that I think has been happening, I guess, in um, the modern storytelling landscape is yeah. that you can do that now. I think so, and I think yeah. what, what you said is that people, are, you know, really enjoy it and we're we're getting used to it. And, you know, for me, I, I think a lot of it depends on promise making. So if I'm watching, a, say, a TV series or something, and they'll have a scene that doesn't really seem to have anything to do with everything else that's going on. And we kind of trust, okay, that'll be significant down the line. And sometimes, you know, two or three episodes or maybe even an entire season goes by and then suddenly there'll be this callback to it. Oh yeah. I remember remember that. But if they don't have that, I always feel cheated. You know, if they have this scene that's a build up to something and I always trust them, okay, they're going to make this significant. But if yeah. they don't, oh, that's so irritating to me. That's right. And because you're a novelist, you're tracking it. Yeah. I do that, too. And I know it's like, okay, this is going to be developed. I'm going to see that grow. I'm curious to see where that, that's going to lead. And I wait for it. I sort of file it away and wait for it. So, yeah, it's it's kind of fun. Um, well, yeah. What? Let's talk about the darkness for a moment, because you mentioned that earlier. And anybody who meets you does not see darkness. You're you're not <laughs> that kind of a person. Mm-hmm. And every time that we've ever been on panels together, you know, you're always lively and witty, and and uh, yet you write some really dark stories. Yeah, I do. How do you how do you climb into that mental space to write about the darkness? I'm not sure. I really know. I mean, yeah. I, I, Frank, I could say the same of you um, and so many of the other mystery writers that we both hang out with at these conferences. Yeah. Um, some of the nicest, kindest people are mystery writers and how it is that we go 
so dark. <laughs> um, I I'm not sure I can explain. I mean, I'm fascinated by it. You know, before I even started writing um, suspense and going so dark in my writing, I, for years, you know, always felt fascinated with this idea that everybody has within them the whole spectrum of light, from light to dark, in terms of potential behavior and feeling and reaction. And it's the sense that not until you're, you know, we're tested do we really know who we are. Um, why do some people become heroic? Why do some people become um, un- do do things that are unthinkably evil? Yeah. Um, how is it? You know, you look at a baby is born and they grow up, and how is it that this person becomes who they are? So I, I've always had this very kind of deep sense that everybody contains all potential. Um, and that kind of attracted me to the dark side. Um, how is it that a person who's kind of going on, going about their life can find themselves doing something that another person would never do? So that, that leads to an interest in the, in the criminal mind. Um, what do you think and, does that? Yeah. Do you have your own theories about uh-huh. About that, I mean, I've also been always interested in that aspect of it, and mm. and um, I don't think there are easy answers, you know. But it mm. seems like sometimes envir- it seems like an environmental cues sometimes bring out the worst in some people and the best in others. It seems that way. I mean, obviously, I read everything I see on the subject because I'm so interested in it, and I've never come across any actual answers. It's the nature nurture conundrum um and it appears to be a mix of both um the most intriguing instances tend to be when somebody grows up in a family full of seemingly stable people um with no aberrations no particular mental illness um or criminal history a loving family when a person is well brought up, um, and then they go forth to do heinous things. So that's the most interesting because it's not, it hasn't been a matter of nurture, and you can't put your finger on the nature, right? Hereditary. Yeah. So, um, you know, when you see an instance of, of somebody obviously growing up in a really criminal family, neglected, abused, and then they grow up to lash out at the world, it's a le- little easier to understand. But it's the aberrations that are most the most fascinating. I don't have the answers, and I haven't yeah. have anyone who does it. Um, but I, and actually, I also think that this might account for why so many readers of books and viewers of TV and movies love these dark, scary stories is because we, A, recognize our own potential for it, yeah, and we're fascinated with how people handle situations when they, going about their lives and doing everything right, cross paths with a person who does bad um, and creates chaos and havoc in your life. So it's, um, I don't think anybody really understands it, but we all know it's there. 
Now, when you write, do you think it's important to dive into, say, the backstory and the genesis of this character? So, for example, I was just thinking of Hannibal Lecter. Here he appears in these book, these early books, Sounds of the Lambs or The Red Dragon, and um, he's just this terrifying figure. But then the more people wanted stories about him, the more Thomas Harris ended up writing sort of these origin stories that I never thought were as strong. And I always yeah. felt like um, the more he tried to explain that this was the event that caused you know, Hannibal Lecter to become Hannibal Lecter, the less I believed it. I just liked it where he was who he was and without an explanation. I'm actually, yeah, yeah. sorry to interrupt. No, that's fine. I was just curious in yours, what's your approach? Do you like to go all the way back into the backstory and try to find an event that causes this character to, you know, pursue the darkness or be drawn toward it? Or do you prefer to just sort of leave that as a bit of a mystery? I prefer to leave it as a mystery, but yeah. I've always found that my whoever my editor is um, insists that I develop backstory. Yeah, interesting. Um, really, with a sense of pressure, and and it's hard to do because I don't know how to qualify how a person would become so horrible how a character could do these horrible things. I don't really think they're... It, it, I, I'm agreeing with, with your sense of this and that I don't think it's a one plus one equals two um, situation. And I think when we try to qualify it in that way and to quantify it, really, yeah. um, it feels thin. Um, but I'm, I'm always... Are you pressured by editors to... So dig dig in and you know find you know t- explain why this bad guy is doing bad bad things. I haven't run into it as much as you have, but I see it so often when I read books about screenwriting or about novel writing. Is this emphasis in that case in in this case from writing instructors and so on that it's really important that you do that and. You know, I'm trying to think through my stories, and I don't know that I really explain a lot of the genesis. I like to have the characters, like you said, just sort of come on the screen. And and I feel like the more we try to pinpoint one specific event that created this character to be like he is, then the less believable it is because we're like, look, we all know there's nature and nurture. There's lots of factors that, that play right. into it. And uh, so... I, right. Yeah. Yeah. And and also we all I think we also all know that many people grow up in really bad circumstances and don't do terrible things. Right. Yeah. And and so how do you draw the line? How do you draw a connecting line from, you know, behavior to causality? Um so but I, I love that you asked this question and that we're having this conversation. Uh, maybe I'll push back a little more. In the future. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, you have written under some different pen names, and your newest book is actually under a pen name. What mm-hmm. advantages have you found to doing to, to to approaching your career in that way, of having a, a number of different pen names that you write under? Right. Um, uh, you know, the first time. I used a pen name. Was I had already published two 
literary small press novels. And the, when I wrote my first suspense novel, um, I, I had never written in the mystery or suspense genre at all. I really didn't know anything about that world. I wrote it um, because I was curious about how suspense operated as a, an element in fiction. And my approach to, to, to uh, trying to strengthen a, one of my own weaknesses in writing was to write something that um, emphasized it. So in this case, it was suspense. How does it really work? And not, and not necessarily even suspense as thriller suspense, but the element of suspense. How is it that a reader feels, you know, this tickle of tension and this need to go forward um, page after page in a story and then ultimately can't put it down? How does that work? How does a writer create that? So I wanted to kind of understand that. And so I decided... I started looking into it, and I ultimately decided, well, I'm going to write an actual suspense novel, and I did that. Um, and I also, at the same time, had two small children and was under pressure to um, make money. So I thought, <laughs> well, maybe I, I publish a couple of novels. I love writing novels. This is my thing. And maybe I can put these two together, and I'm so interested in how suspense works, so I'll, I'll do that. So I wrote this novel as, as an, one novel as an experiment, and then it sold, and it sold at auction, and I was it happened fast, and I was really shocked, um, and I was a little scared because I didn't know what I was getting into, so yeah. I glommed onto a pen name, um, and I just did it, and then I ended up publishing four books under that pen name, um, and at during that time I felt uncomfortable having a, a pseudonym. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I didn't I didn't really like it. I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't realize then that I could go out into the mystery world with that pseudonym, that it was actually a fairly common thing and that I could talk to people like you and say, No, it's me but I'm using this <laughs> name. So I basically I just didn't go anywhere. I mean I stayed home, I wrote my books, I took care of my kids and I didn't go to conferences or do anything. Um, and when I decided after four books to change publishers um, and that new publisher really was okay with me keeping the pseudonym or dropping it, I made the choice to drop it. Hmm. And I decided I, I wanted to, to publish under the name I lived by so yeah. that I could go forth and feel fully comfortable as me in the professional world of mystery writers. And I did that and it did feel more comfortable to me. Yeah. Um, so with my new book, um, again, I decided to change publishers. I wanted to, my books had all had been published. Um, all my mysteries had been published in what we call paperback original meaning that you're going straight into paperback. Um, and I decided I really wanted to go into hardcover. Um, I felt it's not a feeling, it's a fact. And you know, this too, you, you get, you get taken more seriously. Um, and I wanted, I wanted that. I had written so many books, published so many books, and I kind of wanted my career to go up to to a different place. Right. So I enlisted a new literary agent, 
um, I worked really hard on my writing, and he pushed me really, really hard. Um, and then he got several offers on it, and that was very exciting. But he said, listen, I think we should use a pen name. And I resisted because I'd been there. So I wasn't that into it, but I I said, okay, let's just see how it works out. Let's see what publisher we end up with and how they feel about it. So with um, my new publisher, who's been so wonderful, they felt like, you know, you've published a lot of paperback originals. Um, the hardcover market's a bit different. Um, and we think we could approach it better with a different name, but because you have a readership, it can be what we call an open pseudonym, so you can be yourself with it. So it's a little, a little funny. I can't fully explain it, but I, I really respect them, and I decided, okay, yeah. I'm going to trust their um, wisdom and their professionalism, and, um, and I said, tell me how to handle it, and that's what we've been doing. And so I get to be myself, and I get to talk about it. The, um, the book says Karen Ellis, and by the way, that's, that's a derivative of my children's names. My children are Karenna and Eli, so it's Karen uh-huh. Ellis. I, wanted, I, I did that so I could feel very personal and comfortable with that. Um, and it's been good. It's been fine, and it's too soon now to tell if um, the student <laughs> is doing its job out in the world. I mean, I think we'll need a year to know that. Um, so, yeah, publishing is so complex. Yeah. Sometimes I, I think more so than it needs to be. <laughs> <laughs> That's the story. That's the story. Yeah. Now, in thrillers and crime novels, very often they're known for their twists. Um, mm-hmm. Would you say that's an important, po- an important part, an important <laughs> part of your stories? Um, and I'm curious if it is. At what point does the twist reveal itself to you? Is it early or later in the writing process? Uh, yes, I think twists are very important, um, and I. It seems to me that readers of crime novels are always, they expect a, a twist. Yeah. And they want to be surprised. And so at what point it reveals itself to me usually is later in the writing process. That's because I always start off thinking I know it and then discovering that it's actually something else. Isn't that a great feeling, though? Uh-huh. When that comes, because yeah. you think, oh, I know where this you know, is going, and then the story twists and turns into a new direction. And I remember some of my probably most pleasurable moments of writing novels come when that occurs. And I think, oh, if I can pull this off, readers are going to really enjoy this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's awesome. You're writing, and you've been writing for a while, and you're deep, deep, deep into the story. And then all of a sudden you have an idea, and you think, I know what can happen. I know what, what it can be. And there's this always a sense of, I wonder if this is actually a good idea, you know, and kind of sitting on it and living with it for a couple of days and testing it. And when it does turn out to be a good idea, and then when you start to share your work with your first readers um, in the process, and they think it's a good idea. It's exciting, it's, and yeah. it's so wonderful. But yeah, you got to just be in that writing process. At least I do, 
before that happens. So I, you know, as I said, I always think I know, but then I don't. But I like to believe, you know, it's like you have to delude yourself into thinking you know it at the beginning. In order to um, yeah, make progress. Yeah, in order to go forward and then really know it. Yeah. Something you've mentioned a couple of times, you know, you had an idea and you waited a year, you thought about it for a year. Just now you mentioned that you come up with an idea for a twist and you, you know, think about it for a few days. I think that, you know, is really good for our listeners to realize that a big part of the creative process is germination, is letting those ideas kind of germinate and, and instead of necessarily rushing forward with it, um, to, I don't know about our subconscious, but maybe to allow our subconscious to process it or something. What, what do you think about that? Is, is that I, part I, of it for you? Yes, absolutely agree with you. Um, and because uh, you, we get, some of us get a lot of ideas, and they're not always good ideas, <laughs> and they don't always hold our own interest for the duration. So I feel that, um, you know, if, if an idea continues to fascinate me over time, um, and it, then it will start to, as you said, germinate, it'll grow, it'll gain complexity. That's when I know it's a keeper and it's something I can really work with. Um, but just to get what you feel is a brilliant idea and just sit down and start writing it, um, actually, I only ever did that once when it actually did work out. Yeah. Uh, but I usually don't trust it because I feel like I'm just going to be, there's too great a chance I'm going to spin my wheels. Um, and I don't, you know, I just, yes, sometimes my writing day is wasted and I won't use what I wrote that day, but I don't want to really make a habit of that yeah. or especially to produce a whole novel based on an idea that's just not really a good idea. So I wait. And I've always made it a habit to wait, um, except for the one time. And, um, yeah, and, and it served me pretty well, you know, it just to, to see if, and I won't even write it down. I'll just let it sit in my mind. And if I remember, so will I remember this? Will I even remember it? Um, and if I do remember it and I keep thinking about it, it's like the novel that I just finished writing and turned in, you know, that's it was an idea that just came to me sitting on my, um, I live in the city and sitting on my roof deck one day and looking at a neighboring rooftop. I was like, wow, that's really, the thing I'm looking at is really interesting to me. And, um, and then it just sort of stuck with me and it grew. And I got to the point where I just really, really, really wanted to write about it. Um, and then I wrote a little bit. I wrote about a chapter, and then I just put it aside because I was writing another book. So, yeah, I, I'm all for um, allowing an idea to germinate for a while before you commit yourself to the time and effort and struggle of really, if it's going to be a novel, writing a novel. Yeah. Um, and I also always tell my students, I advise my students to – you know, allow themselves enough time in their process um, to put their draft aside for a few days, a week, or however long they have, preferably even longer, and then come back to it and reread it to see how it hits them. Because um, often in the excitement of creativity, <laughs> um, thing, you know, it's not always as clear or, this, or persuasive as it really needs to be. And that will jump out at you later. 
Um, it's kind of like don't press send on an email when it's a hot topic that you really need to ruminate <laughs> over. Good advice. Right? If, you're upset, if you're upset and you're writing an email, don't press send. Right. So it's similar, similar idea. Yeah, or like our president, maybe tweeting something out. Don't tweet at six in the morning. Yeah. Right? Right? Don't do it. Process Um, that a little bit more. (laughs) No trigger fingers. So, uh, yeah, watch that trigger finger, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. So what, is there any advice that you have for either aspiring writers or maybe just people who are telling stories um, in different forms or different media that maybe hasn't been, I don't know, emphasized enough, you think, not necessarily in our interview here, but but out there in the world. Like I, I know one thing that I always really emphasize is that stories are not just events that occur, but they're always pursuit. Um, they're always about unmet desire. And too many mm. people, I think, always ask, well, what would this character do? And I think that can be helpful, but I think it's more helpful to say, what does this character want? And, I mean, it's just a simple little thing that I really t- try to emphasize to people. But when you think about what you teach your students or what they bring to the table, is there um, any bit of advice that you think that's just not being taught enough? Um Yes, a couple things. First of all, I want to agree with what you just said. I very strongly agree. And it reminds me of something that one of my college writing teachers said that I like to repeat to my own students is um, always know what your character has in their pocket. In other words, if they have a nickel in their pocket, know what that nickel feels like. It's smooth, the edge. You may not never bring it out into the story. Um, but it's kind of a way of saying what is what is it that your each character feels right at that moment? And an offshoot of that is what does each character want at that moment? And everybody needs, every single person in the room needs to want something, even if it's just a glass of water in the next room. There's something at that moment that they want. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of motivating and animating them. Um, so figure that out. And whether or not it, you use it, know it. Um, but one, and, and another aspect of this in terms of advice to uh, fledgling writers is always try to establish pretty quickly who this is about what the context is, where this is taking place, because people don't always do this, and what the problem is. Mm, yeah. What is the problem? Establish a question, in a sense, very, very, very fast, very soon, that doesn't get answered till toward the end. Um, and that becomes the quest of the story. And you don't have to beat it to death either. And it doesn't even have to be a genre work. Right. It can be a so-called literary work. They're all literary works, frankly, because we're writing. But, um, but yeah, there needs to be something, some seed of a question that's planted, whether large or small, dramatic or subtle, that doesn't get answered or resolved toward, until toward the end. Um, 
So I always challenge students to, to do that, to keep that in mind. Now, when, when you think about that question or problem, do you tend to emphasize that as externally outside of the character or inside of the character? Um, or do you think that depends more on the genre that's being written of, as to where sort of the central story problem occurs? Yeah. Uh, I think, it, you know, I want to say both, but I think I have a feeling it's a little genre-driven. I think with, a, say, a thriller, external pressure and problems um, are pretty powerful. Characters who find themselves in um, really difficult and problematic situations um, for quieter stories, internal um, can work really powerfully. I, I'm not sure in a crime novel having just an internal problem or quest. I mean, someone will prove me wrong. Right. Uh, in, seriously, I, when no, I look forward to point. somebody sure. saying, hey, okay, I'm going to give you ten examples. In my in a Map of the Dark, I did, I did both. I had right. the external crime, the problem, the finding, you know, solving the crime, happening at the same time that the protagonist, the FBI agent, is having an internal struggle. So I took both and I mashed them together. Um, so, because I personally, as a reader, I find both compelling. Um, I want I want an internal quest as as well as an external pursuit as a reader. Yeah, just and I I think that most you know readers and consumers of stories, whether it's on screen or on a page, are at that place. Like I think we've matured to the place where just having a character facing incredible odds and overcoming and saving the world isn't always enough. We want that inner, you know, turmoil. And, and I think it's just an aspect of us being so astute with stories that we want more complexity within them. We want, mm. we want that. And uh, I think, you know, stories that do both are probably, probably going to draw in more readers than, you know, just one or the other. Just internal musings are going to get tiring after a while and just an ev mm. event after event and plot, you know, chase yeah. after chase is going to get tiring as well. So I, I personally think so. Yeah. Um, and I think you're right. I think that it, that's partly um, a function of, of our expert expectations um, today Yeah. for um, more complexity in storytelling. We're used to it. We've gotten better and better and better stories and novels and shows and movies. I mean, they've just gotten better. Sometimes when you go back and watch, say, an old movie, and it's like, oh my God, that's so undeveloped. You know? <laughs> <laughs> These days, it wouldn't, it wouldn't fly. Um, as, as a, you know, you couldn't redo that in exactly the same way. Um, so yeah, I think people have developed a lot of sophistication as um, readers and viewers. Yeah, I think yeah. it's like any art form, you know, over time it becomes more developed and and um and you you mentioned like watching an old movie or for me even reading a one of the books that people would quote call the classics. Like I've read some mm -hmm. of those and I'm just like this is cumbersome or this is just it's not mm -hmm. well developed or the character isn't strong enough or whatever. And okay. because at that time that was considered uh, kind of you know, the premier writing or whatever. But it would never work today because it's just not strong enough. 
And so I think we mm-hmm. have to, you know, so, so I said that to someone. She's like, you don't want us to read the classics? I'm like, well, if you read the classics, don't read them expecting how to write marketable works today because right. that's not going to help you. I mean, if you want to read them to understand where story was at that place or contextually with that author and history and all that, absolutely go for it. Yeah, um, absolutely. But, yeah. Yep. But um, someone said to me once, and I, I was talking about this at a conference, and he said, to me it's like trying to develop the next uh, model of electronic car by studying the horse and carriage. Exactly. Yeah. So his point is today, you know, we've developed so far from that. You can certainly study the horse and carriage, but don't expect that it will help you develop the next, you know, design of electronic car. And I think... I think the okay. same is true, at least to a certain extent, in our writing. That um, it is, and if you look back studying. over the sweep of literature, um, it, you know there there was a period when novels didn't really exist, and yeah. when they did exist, um, you know, 18th century novels, for example, worked really differently from yeah. 19th century novels. There was actually a moment and a time and an author who shifted the paradigm of what the created modern expectations for stories, um, for how it works at the beginning, the middle, and an end. That wasn't always the case. Mm. Um, and, you know, a hundred years later, it continues to evolve. Yeah. Um, and it continues after that. So, And that's, a, that's something that I always sort of argue um, I ran into this a little with a map of the dark, um, where when I gave it to my agent, and, and we had been working on it and going back and forth, and he had been reading many drafts, and he he used to be an editor for many years. He's great at this. Um, and finally, he said, "Okay, this is really good, but the problem is I'm not sure what it is." Hmm. And I said, "Well, but we're supposed to keep, you know, I, I aren't we supposed to continually?" redefine writers. I mean, part of our, for me, fascination in writing and and for me to stay fascinated, I have to keep experimenting. I yeah. have to keep trying things. And aren't, isn't this part of what, what we're supposed to do, or at least those of us who want to? And he, he got it. He's like, okay. Yeah. And he figured out a way to kind of frame it to editors, and he got several offers, and it was great. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, yeah. And I am running into it a little now with, with critics, though. And it's like some people get it, some don't. And, and, and I just tell myself, you know, you had to expect that because it's yeah. not exactly what's expected. So, but I think that that's how, um, and this is part of literature. I mean, literature isn't just literary novels. It's all genres. Um, it's everything that's written and published today is our body of literature. And we're all, all of us working authors, um, we're pushing it, we're moving it, and we're developing it, whether we know it or not. So, yeah. Yeah, just, you know, just because something isn't easy to package or market doesn't mean it's not great art or great literature or, or a really yeah. fun great book to read and yeah. I actually I, I believe that I strongly that this is one way in which the 
very hyper-focused nature of modern marketing gets in the way of bringing some works to the public um, that can hinder... You know, it used to be this is a novel, it gets published, it's out there, right? Without saying this is horror or this is that, this is a novel was published and it's out there. Now it's so minutely subcategorized and marketed, and it has to be. I mean, I, the marketing has almost replaced the substance of the thing itself sometimes. Yeah, and, that's and I think, yeah, so sometimes something that people who would never look, say, in one section of a bookstore or one subcategory online of a of a on, online bookstore would never ever search for a book in that place. But that's where the book they would love actually is. But they're never going to find it. Yeah. So I find that really frustrating. Um, but I also see, well, that's just sort of what it is now. Well, this has been a great um, conversation. I've really enjoyed uh, talking with you today. And um, before we close up, I was going to see if you had any other, you know, words of advice or anything you wanted to share with people. We want people, of course, to run out and get your latest book, A Map of the Dark. And um, and it sounds I- intriguing to me, especially as the start of a new series. It's, uh, so that's great. But anything um, that you have that uh, you didn't get a chance to share that you wanted to? Um, no. I, I think we covered it. It's been... A genuine pleasure speaking with you, Steve, about all this. Thank you. Um, I always love running into you in person and having a chance to talk to you today about all of our um, literally uh, thoughts. Exactly. I want to thank you for inviting me. Oh, uh, you were a great guest, and I appreciate it. And, of course, we want people to check out the book and also connect with you online. Is there a place that you would direct them to, a website or Facebook or Twitter account that you'd like people to yeah. to tune into? I have it, I have it all. I, I actually have two websites, karenellisbooks.com, um, and then my real name, katyaleaf.com. But you can already tell that, It'll be easier for you to spell KarenEllisBooks.com, <laughs> and I'm on Twitter and I'm on Twitter and Facebook under um, Katya Leaf, so you can find me very easily. Excellent. Um, and so, if if anyone's listening and you're interested in any of my other books, uh, it's StephenJames.net. You can click to for information about that and when I'm appearing at different events. Uh, for more information about our guests and to check out our other broadcasts, click to thestoryblender.com. And we have a conference coming up that registration is now open for in October at characterconference.com. It'll be one of the premier events on writing and developing characters for film and also for uh, print, and that'll be in October in Atlanta. So you can check out information on that. And everyone who's listening, thanks for tuning in, and always remember... The art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.